to the DC Debrief for Friday, January 5th, 2024, and Happy New Year. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, House Republicans visit the border as impeachment proceedings are planned for the head of the DHS. A new report shows China paid Trump businesses millions of dollars while he was in office to stay at his properties. And with the 2024 campaign in full swing, I'll talk to Elaine Kmark of the Brookings Institute on what could happen if things go a little crazy during the presidential election cycle. All that coming up on this edition of the DC Debrief. But before we dive into things, just again, a quick friendly reminder to tell a friend or a family member about the DC Debrief. Help them put it into their phones if you have to. This is the spot where you will be debriefed on everything that happened over the past week in Washington, D.C. I'm going to give you the information. I'm going to give you the newsmakers. I'm going to tell you what everybody's saying. We'll do a little analysis from time to time, but I want you to make up your mind after hearing all sides of these issues. So uh, tell if that sounds like your cup of tea, sounds like something your friends would want to know about, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. All right, with that out of the way, let's get to the debrief for this week. House Republicans visit the border. A delegation of House Republicans, led by Speaker Mike Johnson, traveled to Eagle Pass, Texas this week, the site where law enforcement says is the epicenter of the immigration problem along our southern border. CBN's Hillary Powell reports on their trip to the Lone Star State. Every state in America is now a border state, and we've seen that on vivid display today. We would describe it as both heartbreaking and infuriating. Standing near the U.S. border where thousands of migrants continue to cross, House Speaker Mike Johnson is demanding the White House use more executive actions to stem the record surge of illegal crossings. In Eagle Pass, Texas, House Republicans are expressing concern after the U.S. southern border saw a record rate of illegal migrant encounters last month. U.S. Customs and Border Protection confirms to ABC News officials encountered more than 300,000 migrants in December, far surpassing the previous record of nearly 270,000 in September 2023. In a contentious move to deal with the overflow, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is flying and busing hundreds of migrants to cities, including New York, Washington, D.C., Denver, and Chicago, creating a crisis for many mayors. New York City Mayor Eric Adams issued an executive order making chartered buses bringing migrants into the city provide 32 hours notice, calling it a humanitarian crisis. And that's why we're in court now to say that the right to shelter should not have an impact on this migrant crisis. Republicans blame the surge on policies of the Biden administration. President Joe Biden defends his administration, saying the nation is dealing with a hemisphere-wide challenge and that his administration needs Congress to act. In Chicago, Joaquin Sanchez, a descendant of Mexican immigrants, wants lawmakers to consider compassion. The prioritization of family and survival and breaking out of poverty. I think that's common with my family and with the immigrants today. It's a stance one pastor says is rooted in Christian ideals. It's wrong for people to come in here illegally, but our rhetoric must line up in a way that speaks to the blessing of a particular emerging demographic that continues to serve possibly, if it's done in a a good way, as the future of the conservative movement in America. 
Conservatives are pressing for the provisions in H.R. 2, a bill they passed last year that would restart construction of walls along the southern border and make it drastically more difficult for migrants to claim asylum in the U.S. A bipartisan group of senators is trying to make progress before Congress returns to Washington next week. Now, Senate negotiators continued to work toward a border deal this week that is tied to Ukraine aid. But as they are carrying more favor from some of the more progressive members of their party, it grows more unlikely that a deal will pass the House. And now House Republicans are saying they want to use the government funding deadlines as leverage for a stricter border deal. So they want to move away from coupling the immigration compromise from Ukraine aid. Now. What does this mean for Ukraine funding in the House? Many Republican House members who are against Ukraine funding were willing to vote for it if it meant significant changes were coming to the border. But if those issues are separated, it seems unlikely Ukraine aid would pass the House. And so you have House Republicans wanting to use the threat of a government shutdown over these uh, next few weeks. Again, we have these two deadlines coming up in January and February to excise some concessions from House Democrats, specifically to try and at least get H.R. 2 passed, which you heard Hillary mention just a moment ago, something that Democrats in the House and certainly Democrats in the Senate say is a no-go. But we're moving the goalposts here a little bit. No longer do House Republicans want to tie Ukraine funding and a compromise or a new House uh, border bill. They want to separate those two things, which leaves the Ukraine funding in the House very much in doubt. Mayorkas impeachment push. So as senators negotiated this deal, one key aspect of those negotiations was the involvement of the White House and specifically Alejandro Mayorkas. Now House Republicans have scheduled an impeachment hearing for the embattled Secretary of Homeland Security for Wednesday of next week. Mayorkas was asked about the hearing on CNN Wednesday. I don't have time um, for words uh, like that. We are focused here on solutions. I lead a department of 260,000 incredibly talented public servants, men and women who work at great sacrifice to secure the border, uh, combat human trafficking, protect our country from cybersecurity attacks, um, so much more. This is the work that we do to ensure the safety and security of the American public. I don't have time for politics. We're focused on solutions. Homeland Security Committee Chair Mark Green said the conclusion of the panel's investigation in December has provided House Republicans with enough evidence to impeach Mayorkas. He was one of the congressmen at Eagle Pass this week, and he had some blistering comments for Mayorkas. The greatest domestic threat to the national security and the safety of the American people is Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. He, through his policies has defied and subverted the laws passed by the United States Congress. He has defied multiple court orders. He has lied numerous times to the United States Congress. He has, under oath, stated things that were blatantly, obviously incorrect. He has broken his oath to defend this country. And Green accused Mayorkas of misusing taxpayer dollars and purposefully ignoring border security measures. So uh, this hearing will certainly have its fair share of fireworks. 
weeks to the Iowa caucus. Congressional Republican leaders, as the Iowa caucus grows ever nearer, now seemingly coalescing around Donald Trump. All top five House GOP leaders are now backing Donald Trump after Majority Whip Tom Emmer endorsed the ex-president who helped tank his speakership bid last year. So kind of a surprising nod to the president. But the Minnesota Republican, who served as the House GOP campaign chief, released a statement on Wednesday saying that he was going to support Trump. This came a day after Steve Scalise, the House Majority Leader, also publicly endorsed Trump. Speaker Mike Johnson has supported Trump from the very moment that he got the gavel. And Senator Tom Cotton officially endorsed Trump this week. Politico reporting now 18 Republican senators endorsing the former president, despite all of the headwinds that are out there about Trump and his court cases this year and statements about the 2020 election being stolen. As I said, any concerns that these senior GOP leaders in Congress might have that are being put aside to support the the, the frontrunner who's ahead by 30, 40 points in, in so many of the different polls. Now, the Supreme Court this week decided not to hear Jack Smith's case, arguing Trump is not immune from prosecution due to the immunity clause. This is, uh, this is in the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection case. And Jack Smith had wanted to, the Supreme Court to rule quickly on this. Instead, it will go toward a federal appeals court first, and that will take place on Tuesday. Uh, They will consider Trump's claim that he benefited from presidential immunity in that case, charging him with conspiracy to defraud the U.S. and conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, the counting of the uh, elector ballots in in Congress, and obstruction, or at least the certification uh, of the the electors, and an obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy against rights of citizens. Uh, That trial right now is on hold pending this appeal. That trial is set to get underway on March 4th. Trump did ask the Supreme Court this week to rule on Colorado's decision to keep his name off the ballot, asking them to rule in his favor. CBN's Dale Hurd says some Democrats are worried that the push to keep Trump off the ballot may help the likely Republican nominee. Trump has formerly called on the Supreme Court to throw out a Colorado court's ruling blocking him from appearing on the state's ballot because he allegedly violated the 14th Amendment, which bans those who hold office from having engaged in insurrection. Trump's lawyers argue that the president is not an officer of the United States, and what happened on January 6th was not an insurrection. The appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court is especially significant because the nation's highest court has never before ruled in a case involving Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That's a Civil War era provision that says that if you swore an oath to support the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection, you no longer are qualified for office. After the Colorado decision, Trump posted on his social media platform, Truth Social, what a shame for our country and a sad day for America. Some Democrats are worried the move to keep Trump off the state ballots will backfire politically. High-profile Democrats, including California Governor Gavin Newsom, as well as influential former Obama and Clinton advisor David Axelrod, are calling it a bad move. I have very, very strong reservations about all of this. I do think it would rip the country apart if he were a actually prevented from running because tens of millions of people uh, want to vote for him. Trump already has a huge lead in Iowa, with 30 points over the closest Republican rival. And it's important to note that despite the rulings in Maine and Colorado, Trump remains on the ballots for now. 
both the Colorado Supreme Court and the Maine Secretary of State stayed their decisions, recognizing that it's the U.S. Supreme Court that's going to have the final word on this. The high court's decision will apply to all 50 states. And Trump attorney Alina Haba this week uh, said that she believes that the Supreme Court will rule in Trump's favor, especially considering that Trump put three of these justices on the court. I think it should be a slam dunk in the Supreme Court. I have faith in them. You know, people like um, Kavanaugh, who the president fought for, who the president went through, held to get into place. He'll step up. Those people will step up. Now, GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley has surpassed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in national GOP polling averages. But if you break down the numbers, does it matter? Now, these numbers are according to 538. It's a compilation of uh, different polls. Trump is still at 61.3% with Haley ahead of DeSantis by fractions of a percent, both tied if you take it out to a tenth of a percent, 11.3%. Ramaswamy is at 4%. Chris Christie is at 3.8%. But if you're looking at the math, let's say Ron DeSantis stepped aside. And again, we're looking at national numbers. We're not exactly looking at specific states here. Haley undoubtedly would not get all 11% of his support. So let's say she gets 7%. And let's say Trump gets 4%. That would make it 65 to 18 with Trump in, in the lead. And then let's say Ramaswamy drops out. Pretty much all of his support will likely go to Trump. So that puts him at 69% to 18%. And let's say Christie drops out and all that support goes to Haley. If it's a two-person race, everybody else has dropped out. If you just look at those numbers, the best guess that I can come up with, it says 69 to 21 in favor of Trump over Haley. Now, does winning the New Hampshire primary change things for Haley? It certainly appears as though Donald Trump is going to win the Iowa caucus. He's ahead by 30 points, and every new poll that comes out just seems to support the fact that he has a 30-point lead. But uh, in New Hampshire, some of the polling there is starting to get a whole lot closer. An American research group poll found that Haley is now just four points behind Trump in New Hampshire, polling at 33 percent compared to the former president's 37 percent. So things could be tightening up in New Hampshire, even if Haley does not win Iowa, Trump wins Iowa. Uh, New Hampshire could potentially change some of those national numbers. Uh, the latest uh, now does winning the New Hampshire primary. Uh, it could change things. But she's also lagging far behind in her home state of South Carolina, where she wants served as governor. The latest poll from Trafalgar Group done, now this was in early December, this is the last poll we have from South Carolina, has Trump ahead 49 to 23 over Haley with DeSantis at 14. So again, even if DeSantis were to drop out and she gets all his support, which would be unlikely, it would still be 49 to 37, a 12 point gap. So a lot of work yet to, a lot left to do for Nikki Haley to, to catch Trump in any of these early states. Still, Haley has been aggressive in raising funds, and she clearly is a candidate on the rise. Her presidential campaign says it hauled in $24 million in fourth quarter fundraising. And Donald Trump is certainly now starting to take Nikki Haley seriously, at least if you judge by the money. It's kind of, you follow these things and, and, you can tell where the priorities are based on where the money is going. And uh, Donald Trump's campaign 
or at least a super PAC backing the former president, is spending $4.5 million targeting Haley in new television ads. That's according to CNN. Now, we have Matt Galka, who is on the campaign trail in Iowa this week. He's going to be turning a number of stories for us this week. He's sitting down to speak with Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, Ron DeSantis, and uh, we're going to have a ton of stories coming from Matt's time on the campaign trail in Iowa. Again, just like he's there a week before the caucus is getting ready to take place. So um, hopefully we'll be able to talk to, to Matt next week here on the podcast. But at the very least, uh, CBN News has their has their feet on the ground in Iowa. And uh, we are ready to bring you everything that's happening there as, uh, as that primary is uh, drawing ever closer just a, a fortnight away. China and Trump properties. A new report released by House Democrats found that China and state-controlled entities from that country spent more than $5.5 million at Trump properties in the four years he was in office. That's more than any other single country known to date. In all, 20 foreign countries spent at least $7.8 million at Trump hotels while he was in office. An act Democrats say is a clear conflict of interests and in violation of the Constitution's emoluments clause. Trump's son Eric released a statement saying that the Trumps donated all funds paid to them by these foreign governments to the Treasury Department. Now, if that's the case, there should be paperwork to prove uh, that that actually happened. According to report, the report, those payments uh, that were made to the Trumps from these foreign companies, foreign nationals, uh, collectively included millions of dollars from China's embassy in the U.S. A state-owned Chinese bank accused by the U.S. Justice Department of helping North Korea evade sanctions and a state-owned Chinese air transit company. Accounting records from Trump's former accounting firm were used by Democrats on the House Oversight Committee to get this information. In the report... The House Democrats say that China was one of 20 countries that made at least $7.8 million in total payments to Trump-owned businesses and properties uh, during the time he was in the White House. That includes his hotels in Washington, D.C., New York, and Las Vegas. House Democrats say the payments raise questions about attempts by Chinese officials to influence the Trump administration. Democrats uh, did note that Trump uh, did not impose sanctions on a specific bank, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China. That is a state-owned bank that actually leased property at Trump Tower in New York. And that was despite accusations by House Republicans that the bank conspired with North Korean officials to help that country evade sanctions. Democratic Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett says Trump's businesses accepting this kind of money without getting Congress's permission is a clear violation of the Constitution. We have never accepted this from anybody else. And the only reason we're facing a crisis right now is because he wants to act as if the Constitution doesn't apply to him. Another Democrat, Robert Garcia, says this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of Trump enriching himself through foreign governments while serving as president. Hundreds of properties and and allied businesses all around the world. And so we are getting just a small slice of an enormous corruption grift that we've got to uncover and Comer's blocking every step of the way. Saudi Arabia spent the second most amount of money, more than $600,000 at Trump properties while he was in office, while at the same time lobbying the Trump administration and at times the president himself for various concessions. Democrats are also accusing House Republicans of hypocrisy with this information coming out, claiming that 
They have proof Trump and his family did exactly what Republicans are accusing President Biden of having done through his son Hunter and Hunter's business dealings with foreign nationals. They have been accusing the Biden family of enriching themselves through foreign nationals. Of course, uh, the, uh, an official impeachment inquiry is diving into those allegations and trying to find proof that this happened. So far, there has been no smoking gun and no proof of that of, of the Biden family enriching themselves. But House Democrats say that uh, House Republicans' pursuit of an impeachment proceeding against Biden is hypocrisy given this information that has been discovered about the Trumps. Harvard's president resigns. President Claudine Gay resigned amid allegations she committed plagiarism, and it was it came following congressional testimony in which she refused to outright say anti-Semitic protests were against school policy. As protests were growing on college campuses across the country following Israel's war on Hamas in Gaza, Gay was one of three university professors called to testify last month before a House committee on their school's response to violent rhetoric against Jews on campus. Republican Elise Stefanik repeatedly asked Gay to clarify her university's stance on calls by some students for a genocide of Israeli Jews. So the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. In her letter of resignation, Gay said it was in the best interests of Harvard for her to resign, but defended her record, saying she was subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. Stefanik reacted to Gay's resignation on Fox News. This is long overdue. It should not have taken the Harvard Corporation Board this long to demand her resignation. Gay becomes the second of those three university presidents who testified to resign. Last month, Penn University President Liz McGill stepped down. After the hearing, conservatives also unearthed what appeared to be several instances of Gay lifting portions of her 1997 doctoral dissertation without properly attributing the information she was using. The Harvard Corporation, the school's governing board, found two additional similar instances. Pat Gold, a resident who lives near the school, said she was disappointed in the resignation. People kind of misconstrued what she was saying. Um, and I think they probably bullied her out, really. While Harvard student Yoel Zimmerman says it's the right move. And I especially hope that the Jewish students on campus can feel more safe now with uh, Alan Garber as interim president and with the the next president of Harvard. Alan Garber, the provost and chief academic officer, will serve as interim president. Gay was the school's first black president. She held the job for just a little over six months, the shortest tenure in the school's history. All right, that's going to do it for the debrief portion of the podcast. Now it's time to take our deep dive for the week. Well, now that we have flipped the calendar to 2024 and with the Iowa caucuses now less than two weeks away, the 2024 presidential campaign is it's already been in full swing, but now it's really starting to heat up. And uh, there, this is a very unusual campaign season, a very unusual presidential election. And some what ifs are interesting to think about as these next few months roll along. And joining me to talk about some of those what ifs is Elaine K. Mark. She's a senior fellow at Brookings and is an author as the author of Primary Politics, Everything You Need to know about how America nominates its presidential candidates. Elaine, thank you for joining me on the DC Debrief. How are you? Fine, thank you, and happy new year. Happy New Year to you as well. And I mentioned, you know, a lot of what ifs. It's a weird presidential campaign. You wrote an article this week 
called 10,000 people who could determine the 2024 presidential election. And 10,000 sounds like a lot of people, but of course we're talking about an election in which tens of millions of people, if not more than that, hundreds of millions could vote in this, in this election. So I wanna, I'm interested, how did you get to the number 10,000 in your article? <laughs> well, by looking at the groups of people who would intervene in certain what if scenarios. Okay. So the the one thing to realize about this is that if something were to happen to one of the presidential candidates, the two political parties have long established sets of rules for how to deal with that. So for instance, the first of the 10,000 are about 8,000 delegates to the Republican and the Democratic conventions. Mm -hmm. And it, no matter what happens to their front runners, uh, the fact of the matter is they would proceed to elect delegates to a convention. They would proceed to have a convention. It might be a little bit more chaotic or a lot more chaotic than conventions <laughs> we've seen in the recent past. But, you know, the conventions were the way we selected uh, presidential nominate nominees all the way from 1831 to 1968. Right. So it has been done before and it will be done. And then if anything happened to the presidential nominees after the convention, the two political parties, there's about uh, 500 people between the two parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, um, their national committees, the governing boards of their parties, would are, in, are authorized to elect, select the net nominee. So that gives you that gets gets you starts getting you up there towards <laughs> ten thousand, right? Yeah. And then there's the electoral college, which most people don't realize electors are actual real people. Right. They actually have a meeting on the early in December after the election to certify the electors to the United States Senate. Um, that's five hundred thirty-five people, right? And then finally, of course, if if for you know any reason this goes into the House of Representatives, in mm -hmm. other words, nobody wins uh, two hundred and seventy. There's another four hundred thirty-five people who you know elect. So basically, you add them all together, and you get a little bit over ten thousand people. I, I want to break this down just a little bit because yes, that there's uh, there's a number of different groups here that you just mentioned that could have an impact. And I, I we want to preface this by saying, this is if something weird happens, right? This is if something, something yeah. yeah, like nothing, like if 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 Biden's the nominee and Trump is the nominee and it goes along normal paths and one of them wins 270, this doesn't really come into play. But we know that this is a very strange election with with Donald Trump facing a number of legal battles, legal situations that could land him in some serious trouble convictions of federal crimes. You've gotten President Biden, a person who is aging, and there's a lot of concern about his aging. And so these are the types of things that we're thinking about as, as we move the ball down the field a little bit here. You and your piece talked about the importance of political parties, and I think that's really important, specifically in the nomination process with regard, and, and with regard to recent rulings like Colorado and Maine, keeping right. Trump off the ballot there. Can you talk a little bit about that scenario? Like if Trump's not on the ballot in those two states, what role do these political parties have? Well, one of the things that's sort of interesting about this is all the fuss over him being kept off the ballot. Now, mm -hmm. if he was being kept off the November ballot, that would be a big deal. However, political parties have the authority to nominate the president, any mm -hmm. political party, right? And right. they are protected by the First Amendment, by the freedom of association. And so 
even if Donald Trump is not on the Colorado ballot, the Colorado Republican Party could have a convention. They could have a state committee meeting. They could pick delegates to the Republican convention and they could pick all Trump delegates to the Republican convention and ditto for Maine. So it really doesn't matter. I mean, the interesting thing here is it really doesn't matter in the nomination race. In the general election race, there's often laws that pledge the electors um, to the presidential candidate who wins the uh, wins the general election um, in that state. But um, for the nomination, it really doesn't matter because nominations are controlled by political parties. And prior to the reforms enacted in 1972, um, nobody had primaries. Okay, it yeah. did, you didn't need a primary to get delegates to the convention. And one of the things that gets forgotten is that it's actually not primaries that nominate presidents. It's delegates to conventions that nominate presidents. And, you know, I I, I don't know whether this ruling will stand. I mean, most people think it won't. But, um, you know, there's no reason why the Maine and the Colorado Republican parties can't send delegates to the convention pledged to Donald Trump. Even they if Trump's not on the ballot. Yeah. Yeah, they don't need a primary to do that. For for a hundred more than a hundred years prior to nineteen sixty-eight, nobody had a primary. The parties chose the delegates that went to the convention. One of the things you also talk about is the difficulty a third party candidate could have in this electoral system. And even though we have two candidates where I think I've seen polling where a majority of the American people don't like the matchup of Biden versus Trump. I mean, you certainly have strong supporters of both people, but no one really likes a rematch from from what we saw in, in 2020. And yet. That's the most likely scenario as we sit here in early January. And there are rumblings about third party candidates and no labels candidates, some trying to find some candidate who can pose a serious challenge to Trump or Biden. But you talk a little bit about the difficulty that a no labels candidate would have given the strength and the importance of the two political parties. Can you flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, I mean, w the reason the two political parties survive, okay, as long as they have, is that they have legitimacy to them. And they gain their legitimacy by their own internal set of governing laws. So you, they pick precinct chairman, they get elected. The precinct chairman pick county chairman, they pick state committee chairman. Um, they, they operate, <clears throat> both of them, in a, in a very transparent way. And that's been going on for more than half a century now, that this real transparency. So when even though people don't like the outcome, at least they know how Donald Trump got nominated. They mm -hmm. know how Joe Biden got nominated. No Labels has a big problem. It's not a political party. It's fighting being called a political party because then they'd have to um, show their contributors. Um, and therefore, they don't have a process that is going to be looked at as legitimate. So if they come, they're going to pull somebody out of a hat at the mm -hmm. rate they're going now, or they're going to have an online poll. You know, that's that's sort of ridiculous. How about people who don't hear about it, et cetera? You know, the two po main political parties spend a lot of time publicizing their process so people can participating and getting out their vote, et cetera. So the, the um, if you're not a political party, you don't have a process. And frankly, I think that anybody they do pick is not going to be seen as very legitimate. 
Whereas the two main political parties, we all see the primaries, we see them contesting them, we understand that even if we don't like the outcome, the fact of the matter is that they did go through an established process. Right. I think for a lot of voters, it sounds it would be a third party candidate. Let's just throw a name out there like a Joe Manchin or something. It would almost feel like a cheat code, right, to kind of be able to get to the general election process without having to go through the, the, yeah. the primary process. And I think that rubs some voters the wrong way. Oh, it's going to rub voters the wrong way. And And look, the other thing that's happening is, you know, people answer in the polls. They say, yeah, they don't like Trump and they don't like Biden. OK, but, you know, let's face it. Um, Abraham Lincoln is not going to be the no labels candidate. George Washington <laughs> is not going to be no labels candidate. In other words, as soon as you put a real life person in there, um, mm -hmm. that person has their flaws. They have their um, advantages and their disadvantages, and they will be looked at and and taken apart yeah. um, as the press looks at them. So it's a sort of it's a it the whole the whole thing is a pipe dream. What happens, and you mentioned uh, that what if, if somebody, if nobody wins 270 electoral votes, you mentioned in your in your uh, lead into to my questioning, uh, what, what kind of happens there. But I do want to dip in a little bit more into what happens if for some reason the winner of the election after election day, but before he's inaugurated, is not able to assume power. What happens then? Well, there's two two different things. Okay. Um, the Electoral College meets in every state capital in the United States um, on the in middle of December. And that's that's in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. um, the electors, the elect nobody's been in the situation where the electors are going into a meeting and their candidate has, say, died or had a terrible stroke or gone to jail. Right. Mm -hmm. So in that instance, it is possible that some of these electors will decide to vote for somebody new. Okay, maybe they'll vote for the person who was the vice president on the ticket, but they don't have to. Yeah. Um, maybe they'll vote for some other person who, you know, nobody's heard of or comes out of nowhere. In other words, they're, they have a, a little bit of freedom mm -hmm. in there. Yeah. Um, if the Electoral College has met already and there is officially a president-elect, then the 20th Amendment to the Constitution takes force, and then the vice president becomes the person who's inaugurated. But it's not until the meeting of the Electoral College itself in December that we have formally a president-elect. I think one of the big takeaways for me from all of this is that there are a number of scenarios. And again, it's kind of break glass in case of emergency type scenarios. But there are a number of scenarios in which the vote of the American people in the in the general election may not result in who their actual president will be. Is that is I know that that's probably a very basic way of looking at it. But is that is that true? Well, I, I, I would amend that a little bit. OK, okay. Yeah, there are a variety of scenarios in which the vote of the American people does not give a clear outcome. OK. OK. Yeah. So, for instance, in the primaries, this could easily happen because you you often have more than two candidates. Mm -hmm. So you could have a candidate winning by plurality and and then you could have three other candidates coalescing against that person at the convention. It's really 
all these scenarios really happen when there isn't a clear winner. Okay. And that's, and that's very possible. It's very possible that third parties would cause the electoral college vote to split splinter in ways where nobody gets a clear majority. If people are getting clear majorities at the convention and then in the electoral college, then these scenarios don't happen. It's really if there's some kind of uncertainty um, in the outcome. So what do you think the odds are that any of these things comes to pass this year? Um, I think they're I think they're very low. I think it's, you know, maybe 10, 20%. I mean, the the biggest thing you have happening this year is you have the two oldest candidates ever that we've ever had in history running against each other. Yeah. Uh, Trump is 77, Biden's just turned 81. So, you know, at that age, things do happen. Um, yeah. And so, <laughs> and yes. so that's why so many people, I think, are thinking about this. And there, a lot of the attention has been towards Biden, but Trump is equally vulnerable. I mean, mm -hmm. he doesn't exactly look like a guy who runs 10 miles a week. You know, <laughs> yes. he, he, fair he enough. Looks like, he, looks like he's got his own health problems. I wouldn't yeah. be at all surprised if he's diabetic or pre-diabetic. I mean, you know, so so you've got two old guys. And um, I think mentally they are both just fine. I mean, I, they operate at, at a high level. Um, there's no indication that either one of them has is slowed down or has dementia or anything like that, but they are old. Yeah. And so I think that that's why we have so much attention to these alternate scenarios. And then, of course, there's the, there's the thing that people, a lot of people don't like the rerun. You know, yeah. they'd, they'd like to see some new blood and that's that's natural, mm -hmm. but it doesn't look like there's any way out of that scenario. Very true. Uh, polling numbers certainly bear that out. Um, so just uh, real quick before we let you go, I did want to ask you about the Iowa caucus and with it being less than two weeks away, it's a week from from Monday. Can you just explain for people who may not know how a caucus differs from a primary? Well, most most caucus is different from primaries in that people actually go into a room and they cast their votes in front of their friends and neighbors. Mm -hmm. And then if somebody doesn't reach a certain per percentage, 15%, uh, they can go caucus with another group. So it's a very open, um, very interesting process. Um, although if you're old or you're serving overseas in the military, you, you can't participate mm -hmm. in it. So that's that's a problem. The Iowa Republican caucus is actually somewhat different, and it's really a misnomer to call it a caucus because it's really a party-run primary. People okay. come into that caucus, and they actually vote on a, a secret ballot on mm. a piece of paper. And then they proceed to have a meeting which which elects people to the, to the county conventions and the state conventions. Um, so they do have that meeting, but the actual presidential part of it is really more like a primary. And we have a lot of, not a lot of states, but a fair number of states that do have party run primaries. So it's basically a primary, it's just the state isn't paying for it, the party is. Got it. Well, it's an interesting, it's certainly an interesting process. I think most of us are used to going to a ballot box and, you know, right. filling out a, putting a, filling in a circle and putting it in a box, but the, the caucuses are definitely a little bit different. And Iowa has always, you know, kind of surprised us. They've oftentimes given us a, a surprise in, oh, yeah. in Republican and Democratic primaries. 
So oh, yeah, I mean, you can you can absolutely be ready for a surprise. One of my first <laughs> political campaigns was for Walter Mondale, and we were very surprised when <laughs> Gary Hart won the New Hampshire primary. And I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> well, it's a very interesting article, and and we just touched the surface. There's a lot of detail in in the article uh, that Elaine wrote, uh, so make sure you go uh, check her out over at the Brookings Institution. Uh, you can just find her on your website, Elaine K. Mark. Uh, find all of her things there. Uh, and also, please check out her book, Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidential Candidates, apropos right now here as we get ready for this uh, 2024 primary season. Elaine, thank you for joining me on the DC Debrief. I really appreciate it. Oh, I, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right, looking ahead later today, President Biden will lay out what he sees as the stakes of the 2024 presidential election, democracy and freedom in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. It'll be his first campaign event of the new year. This was supposed to take place tomorrow, Saturday, on the third anniversary of January 6th, but uh, there's a winter storm moving up the East Coast, and so uh, they wanted to move this thing up a day so that it didn't get canceled out by rain and wind and snow and all that sort of thing. So uh, the president making his first uh, campaign speech of the year, and it is expected to be a pretty big one coming up later in the afternoon on Friday. Next week on Wednesday, CNN will hold Republican presidential primary debates in Iowa, or a presidential primary debate in Iowa, excuse me, with Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, the only ones qualifying. Uh, Trump will hold a counter-programming town hall event on Fox News. And on Thursday of next week, there will be a court hearing for Hunter Biden on allegations that he failed to pay his taxes, failed to file, evaded an assessment, and filed a fraudulent form with three of the charges felony counts that could result in a prison sentence. So just a couple of the stories that we are keeping an eye on next week and, of course, um, keeping an eye on that Mayorkas impeachment hearing next week as well. All right, now it's time for the closer, and I ran across a very interesting survey, a poll done by Deseret News, a new Deseret News Harris X poll, uh, talking about faith and our and and the folks who are running for president and uh, specific leaders and some very eye-opening numbers here. I'm just going to give you some numbers here and and then we'll we'll talk about them in just a second. 64% of Republicans, so nearly two-thirds of Republicans who were polled in the survey said Donald Trump was a quote person of faith. And I'm going to put that in quotes because there is a distinction I'm going to make here in just a second. A quote person of faith. 64% of Republicans said Trump was a person of faith. Pence, Mike Pence, came in second at 56%. So in this poll, more Republicans said Trump was a person of faith than Mike Pence, 64% to 56%. More Republican voters said Trump was a person of faith than his opponents in the presidential primary. They had Nikki Haley at 44%. 44% of people said that she was a person of faith. Ron DeSantis at 34%, and Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie both at 22%. Haley was raised Sikh but converted to Christianity. DeSantis is Catholic and Ramaswamy is Hindu. In this latest survey, voters were also asked whether they considered a list of politicians to be religious. This is different from being a person of faith. Most Republicans, 62%, said Pence was religious, while only 47% said Trump was religious. So when you ask people who is a person of faith, more people believed Trump was a person of faith over Pence, but when you asked them who was more religious— more people said Pence than, than Trump, 62% to 47%. And while only 13% of Republicans said President Biden was a person of faith, 26% acknowledged he was 
religious. That number doubled. 69% of Democrats said Biden was a person of faith and 72% said he was religious. And of course, Biden is a, a well-known Catholic. Um, in con- So those who said Trump was a person of faith or religious point to their perception of him as a defender of religious people or policies. 67% said Trump defends people of faith in the U.S., Six in 10 said he supports policies that focus on families, and 54% said he cares about people like me. The least common reason for saying Trump is a person of faith or religious, only 26% of respondents said that he's actively involved in religious and faith communities. So more GOP voters view him as a person of faith than view him as religious. And when calling him a person of faith, voters more frequently pointed to his actions on behalf of religious people rather than his own religious beliefs or his uh, his 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 devotion to religion. Uh, Those who called him religious were more likely to say he openly expresses his religious beliefs, 57%, and that the former president is honest and trustworthy, 53%. So it's a very interesting poll. It's a Deseret News uh, Harris X poll. uh, And some of the numbers are, are very interesting into how Republican voters are defining person of faith and religion. And this might be a story we have to we have to take a deeper dive into uh, in an upcoming episode of this podcast uh, coming up because uh, some uh, some some numbers to sift through there. And I'll actually put a, a link to the poll and the story uh, in the show notes uh, for the podcast. So if you just uh, scroll down to the bottom of the podcast and, and click on the link there, uh, you can get access uh, to this story uh, and you can read a little bit more on it for yourself. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this edition of the DC Debrief. Again, please remember to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else it is that you get your podcasts. Thanks, everybody, for starting your new year here with us. And we'll talk to you next time right here on the DC Debrief. Thank you.